Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, most of you have probably heard of Saving Private Ryan, a movie that came out in 1998. Many of you perhaps have seen that film. The movie begins with U.S. forces landing on Normandy Beach in German-occupied Western Europe in June of 1944 in the midst of World War II. And then it proceeds to show some of the most graphic and unsettling uh, displays of violence and warfare ever depicted in film. The first scene lasts around 20 minutes or so. It feels a lot longer than that. I remember actually feeling exhausted by the time that scene was over in watching that movie. And like Saving Private Ryan, the book of Joshua records an important and violent war that took place. A war between Israel and the Canaanites when Israel took the land that the Lord their God had promised to them. And yet the book of Joshua begins much differently than Saving Private Ryan begins. The book of Joshua actually begins with words of encouragement spoken to Joshua, Israel's leader, by the Lord. Words to call Joshua to covenant faithfulness and to obedience to the word as he guides and directs the people of Israel and also how he had commanded the people of Israel to ready themselves for battle and the people respond in obedience. But before marching out to war, which we don't get until chapter three, chapter one is followed by this kind of interruption in the flow of the story. In chapter two, where we read this account of some spies and a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. So before the Israelites battle the Canaanites, we get saving prostitute Rahab. And before the conquering of the land, there's a different kind of conquering that we read about. The conquering of a heart. Not by military weapons, but by God's grace. We read of a conquered heart in the heart of Canaan. And really what we learn from this event in Joshua chapter 2 is this truth, that our conquering God rescues adulterous sinners from destruction by grace through faith. Let me say that again. What we learn from Joshua chapter 2 is this truth, that our conquering God rescues adulterous sinners from destruction by grace through faith. That very clear teaching of the New Testament and that proclamation of the gospel is found right here in Joshua chapter 2. We could say it's the gospel according to Joshua. The chapter actually divides into three sections, and we're going to consider it in three sections this morning. We first see in verses 1 through 7, Rahab's conduct, and then verses 8 through 13, Rahab's confession, and then finally, in the concluding verses of 14 through 24, we consider Rahab's confidence. So those are the three points this morning in those three sections. I'm actually going to read the passage Not the whole chapter at one time, but the passages as we get to those points. So I'm not going to have you stand for the reading of God's word because I'm not going to have you stand three different times. But if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to begin by just reading the first seven verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to locate a paperback Bible in one of the seats in front of you. Please take that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to have that. Take it home, but it would be, it would be good for you this morning to have the text in front of you. If you're using the paperback Bible uh, underneath the seats, you can find our text on page 102. Okay, so again, we're going to be reading from Joshua chapter 2, beginning with the first seven verses. Hear the word of the Lord. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go. View the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute 
whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the, women, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And so we see that this chapter begins with Joshua sending out two spies into the city of Jericho, which would be the first city they encounter in their battles, on this reconnaissance mission. And it's in the context of this mission that we witness Rahab's conduct. And perhaps the first thing that you would notice about Rahab's conduct from verse 2 is that she is a prostitute. Rahab is a sex worker in the city of Jericho. And so you might wonder, why did the spies go there? to lodge in her house. Did, did the spies go there for the reason that other men would likely go to Rahab's house? No, it's actually likely that the men went to Rahab's house to remain anonymous. Jericho was a very popular trade route in the ancient Near East, and so many visitors would likely enter into Rahab's house. And so entering into Rahab's house allowed them to go a little bit more under the radar as they gained information about the land and the city of Jericho. But their entry actually doesn't go unnoticed because the king of Jericho is informed in verse 3, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight, notice, not to request Rahab's services, but they've come to search out the land. And so in response, the king sends out this unit of Jericho policemen. They arrive at Rahab's house in whatever ancient Near East squad car they had at the time with red and blue lights flashing in the sky and they knock on Rahab's door. Maybe if it's evening, they're shining a spotlight in her face and say, sorry, ma'am, we hate to bother you tonight, but we've received a report that some Israelites have come into town. We have reason to believe that they're hiding in your house. And then we read Rahab's response in verses four and five. She says, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And so off these Jericho policemen go on this wild goose chase to the fords of the Jordan in hot pursuit of these spies without ever looking in Rahab's house. That's important. They don't search the house. They just go off to the fords of the Jordan in hot pursuit of these Israelite spies, but they're not going to find them because we learn that Rahab has not told them the truth. Verse 6 tells us that she had brought the spies up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so there you have it, Rahab's conduct. She's a harlot and a liar. Not the most noble things you could say about someone. In fact, you could say more, not just about her conduct, but about her condition. Bear in mind that Rahab is a Canaanite and she lives in the city of Jericho, which is a city that's marked for judgment and destruction from God when the Israelite army comes in to take the land. Rahab is a lying Canaanite harlot doomed to destruction by God and his army. But there's more we need to say about 
Rahab's conduct. That's not just it. There's more to consider. Don't miss the fact that she protects the Israelite spies. She acts on their behalf, and this at great risk to her own life and welfare. I mean, if the Jericho authorities had decided to search the house despite Rahab's words, it is reasonable to believe that if they would have found the men hidden, that Rahab would have been executed along with the Israelite spies. But she speaks on their behalf nevertheless. We should also consider this, that not all deception is sinful. Not every act of deception is sinful. I mean, just consider if you're playing a game and you run a trick play that's designed to deceive the opponent, we don't think that that's sinful. It's not sinful. Now, granted, when you're playing a game, there's an agreed-upon element that deception is just part of how the game will be played, and both parties agree with that. That's not quite the context of Joshua chapter 2, is it? It's not a game being played, but we do have to at least reckon with this. Not every form of deception is sinful. Furthermore, not every moral principle is absolute in every single context. Not every moral principle is an absolute in every context. Now, some of you are probably starting to get nervous. Thinking, what, what is this, some kind of argument for uh, moral relativism depending on the situation? Well, just consider something like this. There are very clear commands in the Bible for wives to submit to husbands, for children to obey parents, and for all of us as citizens to submit and obey the governing authorities that God has put in place, right? Those are clear commands in Scripture, and yet those commands have limits. There are times when higher moral principles come into play where we actually wouldn't submit, we wouldn't obey, we wouldn't yield to government authorities when doing so in a certain context would mean that we're disobeying God. And we see examples of that in Scripture as well. And so we have to reckon with that. In certain contexts, other moral principles come into play. Now, this context in Jericho 2 is not a game where deception is agreed upon, but it is in a unique context. The context of Joshua 2 is military warfare. And in wartime, killing is viewed differently. I don't know if you noticed it in the reading of the Sixth Commandment, but there's an exception made on killing there when it has to do with just war and self-defense. Context has a bearing. Remember this also in wartime, that to give away military information to one's enemies is counted as treason, right? To give away military information in wartime is treason. And notice what Rahab does. She withholds military information from the Jericho authorities, her own people. Notice that Rahab views the Jericho authorities as her enemies because she's taken sides with the Israelites and the spies. She's taken sides with Israel. Why does she do this? I mean, we don't read that she does this because the Israelite spies have threatened to kill her if, they, if she reveals their location. So why does she do this? She does this as an act of faith. So what we should see here more than anything else about Rahab's conduct is her conduct of faith. That's what we're reading here in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab's conduct of, of faith. And this is exactly actually what the New Testament emphasizes about Rahab's conduct. Because we read about Rahab in both James chapter 2 verse 25 
and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 in the New Testament. In both of those instances, neither author makes any mention about the untruth that Rahab tells. But instead, they emphasize her conduct of faith. That's what's emphasized. And the fact that she hides the spies as an expression of her faith is made even more clear when we read of Ahab, or Rahab's confession in verses 8 through 13. So let's pick back up in the text at verse 8 and read through verse 13 as we consider Rahab's confession. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This is the word of God. At the center of this chapter is Rahab's confession. She confesses a number of things. She confesses certainty that the Lord is giving the Israelites the land. She confesses the Canaanites have lost all courage in light of the Lord's mighty power. And then she makes this striking confession in verse 11, that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, Rahab confesses her faith in Israel's God. Rahab believes in the one true God, the God of Israel, and she confesses it here. And so, listen, to spend all of our time trying to figure out what we're supposed to do with Rahab's lie is to miss the point. Spending all this time thinking about what to do with Rahab's lie misses the truth that she tells. And we don't want to miss that important point, the truth that she confesses refer to another movie that's quite different than Saving Private Ryan. Some of you may have seen the film Dumb and Dumber. Jim Carrey plays a character named Lloyd Christmas who is infatuated with this person named Mary. And when he finally locates Mary, you see the scene here, he has a conversation with her. If you've seen the movie, you remember the scene. He says, what are the chances of a girl like me and a guy like you ever getting together? And she says, not good. And he says, not good like one in a hundred? And she says, no, more like one in a million. And he says, so you're telling me there's a chance? Yes. He's missed the point. She's telling him there's no chance. We don't want to miss the point. We can miss the point at crucial times. We don't want to miss the point here in Joshua chapter 2. The point is not the truth that Rahab doesn't tell. The point is the truth that she does tell as she confesses her faith in the one true God of Israel. And how does she come to confess this faith? How does she come to this realization that Israel's God is the one true God of heaven and earth? Because she heard. She heard. That's what it says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
She hears like we hear. I don't have any instance here that God revealed himself to Rahab in a dream or that he spoke to her directly the way he speaks to Joshua at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1. No, she heard like we hear. She has heard of his mighty, glorious acts of redemption that occurred 40 years earlier, likely before she was born. It's unlikely that Rahab is anywhere close to 40 years old. Her family is all still alive. She bears children after this. She's under 40. All this stuff happened before she was alive, but she heard of God's redemptive acts, how he dried up the Red Sea and brought his people Israel out of Egyptian bondage on dry ground, how he had overthrown the kings on the east side of the Jordan, just on the other side from where she dwells in Jericho. And she heard this, and she believes. And you know what? We have heard of even greater and mightier works of God's redemption. Acts that happened before any of us were born. How through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been redeemed from a greater bondage than Egyptian slavery. We've been delivered from the bondage of sin and death. And so how do you respond to that news that you've heard? How do you respond to the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus that redeems sinners? Have you responded in faith like Rahab or in stubborn unbelief like the rest of the Canaanites? But we learned something else about responding in faith here from Rahab. Note how Rahab reminds us that biblical faith is not just about giving intellectual assent or acknowledgement to the truth of God's existence, that he's the true God. It's more than that. It's not just intellectual assent. True faith, like Rahab's, seeks salvation from this God. That's the mark of genuine faith because she casts herself upon the mercy of this God and stakes her life on his words spoken through these spies. She seeks protection under the wings of his grace just as she protected the spies. This is the argument she uses in verses 12 and 13. And so it is indeed true that hearts have melted in Canaan. Most have melted in fear and terror. But one has melted in faith. By God's grace, Rahab has heard the word of the Lord and his redemption. And she believes but Rahab must continue in her faith and she must bear the signs of faith so that what can be established is Rahab's confidence and that's what we read in verses 14 through 24. So let's pick up the reading there and read to the end of the chapter. Picking back up in verse 14, Joshua chapter two. The men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. 
They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the reading of God's word. And so we see that the men answer Rahab's request for protection by calling her in in verse 14 not to tell anything about this encounter they've had in the city of Jericho. She's not to mention their presence there. She's to keep that a secret. But they also answer her request by calling her in verse 18 to bear this sign of the scarlet cord or this rope by which she lets them down the wall. She is to display this sign in her window. And it's by being marked out by this sign that gives her confidence of rescue and deliverance. It's by being marked out by this sign that gives her the confidence of her rescue and deliverance and that of her family as well. Now, much is made of this scarlet cord, right? Some see in this scarlet cord a symbol of the blood of Jesus because of its color. Others would think that takes it too far, just reads too many things from the New Testament into the Old Testament. So what are we to make of this scarlet cord? Well, at least at minimum say this, whatever else we say, the scarlet cord is a sign that marks Rahab out for life in the midst of a city marked for death, right? It marks Rahab out for life in a city that is marked for death and destruction. And in this way, it does point us to the redemptive work of Jesus and his blood, but not because of the color Color is probably just something that would be very visible to the soldiers when they entered into the land. They could see it hanging from her window. It's not the color. It's the function that connects it, that connects it to the redemptive work of Jesus. As something that marks Rahab out for life in the midst of death connects it to the blood of the Passover lamb, which actually these Israelite spies would have been very familiar with as a sign that marked them for life in the midst of judgment because they were to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the door frames and the doors so that when the avenging angel of death came through the land of Egypt, they would be spared because that blood marked them for life in the midst of a city and a nation marked for death and judgment in Egypt. And so note that both the blood of the Passover lamb and this scarlet cord can be described this way. They're signs of God's gracious promise of rescue and his promise of grace to be received and applied by faith. So both the blood of the Passover lamb and the scarlet cord signify. They're signs of God's gracious promise of rescue and his promise of grace to be received by faith. In other words, they're kind of sacramental. Because I've just described to you what a sacrament is. It's a sign of God's gracious promise of rescue and of his grace to be received by faith. And we know that the sacraments have in view the redemptive work of Jesus. They anticipate and find fulfillment in the redemptive work of Jesus. And so Rahab receives confidence of God's rescue through this sign. And like Rahab, we can have confidence of our rescue in the signs that have been entrusted to us in the church. Signs of God's gracious promise of rescue and his promise of grace that can be received by faith that signify Jesus, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. The sacraments are given to us to give us confidence and encouragement and assurance that we participate in the redemptive work of Jesus 
that when we receive them by faith, we receive him because he is signified in those elements. And so we can have confidence, like Rahab has confidence in this sign given to her in the Old Testament. And the chapter actually ends with confidence in verses 23 and 24, but actually it doesn't end with Rahab's confidence. The chapter actually concludes with the confidence of the Israelites as they return to Joshua with assurance and confidence that the Lord is indeed giving them this land that was promised to them because all the Canaanites have melted with fear. And so certainly that's an important part of the story. The Lord is working to give his people Israel encouragement and confidence for all the battles that lie ahead, the first battle of which will be in Jericho. But God is doing more than that here in Joshua too. He is giving his people encouragement but he is also working to bring his salvation and his grace to the Gentiles. Because in Joshua chapter two and this rescue of Rahab, a Gentile, what we have here is an anticipation of that time where Jesus will commission the gospel to go forward into all nations. And he will bring people of every tongue, tribe, and nation into the covenant community. Just as we see here with this one person in Canaan being brought into the church. And of course, the Lord indeed is faithful to his promise because we read in Joshua chapter six when the Israelites take Jericho, verses 22 through 25, that Rahab is indeed spared with all of her household. God rescues Rahab. He's true to his word. What a marvelous grace. What a marvelous grace for sinners. And it is a grace for sinners. Right? Rahab reminds us of that. Whatever else you want to make of Rahab, remember that when we first encounter her in Joshua 2, she's a Canaanite prostitute. And God's grace envelops her and welcomes her into the church. Does that make you uncomfortable? Well, maybe not so much today because we can keep some distance from Rahab in the pages of Scripture. But what if Rahab or someone like Rahab entered into our assembly this morning. Would that make you uncomfortable? Knowing what you might know of Rahab. And has our discomfort resulted from buying into this lie that somehow the community of the church is for clean, decent, middle-class kind of people with spotless and respectable pasts? I hope we haven't bought into that lie. It's not true. And if it is true, then all of us are disqualified. Because no one is a clean, decent person with a spotless and respectable past. That's none of us. There is no one here this morning that is so good that you don't need the grace of God to rescue you every bit as much as Rahab needed it. None of you are that good. We all need that same grace from God that Rahab received. But at the same time, what is also true is that there's no one here this morning that's so bad that the grace of God cannot reach you and save you and rescue you. If God can save Rahab and adopt her into the covenant family and write her into the story, this grand story of redemption that he is working, if he can conquer this heart in the heart of Canaan, his grace is sufficient to save you. And I know there's excuses. You, you don't know how much dysfunction 
has been in my family. You don't know the weight of baggage that I carry on a daily basis, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as a result of my family of origin that I just can't easily shake. Rahab was a Canaanite. But you don't know the kinds of horrible, awful things that I've done in my past. Rahab was a prostitute. But you don't know how unworthy I am of anyone's love, let alone the love of God. Christ Jesus saves sinners. There's no excuse. God's grace can reach you because our story is Rahab's story. Rahab's story is our story. Rahab's story is a story of a prostitute finding salvation through her association with Joshua. Or might we call him Yeshua? That's his Hebrew name. And yes, it is the same name as the Hebrew name for Jesus. And so what we really need to say is Rahab is a prostitute who finds salvation through her association with the greater Yeshua. Because actually Rahab's story continues all the way into the story of Jesus. Her story continues all the way into the pages of the New Testament when we encounter her name one more time in the very first chapter of our New Testament, Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 in the genealogy of Jesus where we discover that Rahab, after she was rescued, marries a man named Salmon, a Jew. And Salmon and Rahab bear a son named Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth, also a Gentile. And they give birth to a son named Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, who's the ancestor of the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the one whose birth we're celebrating during this Advent season. Rahab is saved by the grace of her own son. That's her only hope of rescue and eternal life. And that's my only hope of rescue and eternal life. And that's your only hope of rescue and eternal life. Rahab's story is our story. In fact, we could say that the whole story of the Bible is a story about the rescue and transformation of a condemned prostitute into the redeemed bride, the church, who Jesus the bridegroom lays down his life to purify and to cleanse and to make her his bride and to rescue this prostitute who is enslaved in the world. It's a story of the Bible. It's your story and it's my story. And so all praise and glory to the greater Joshua who alone can and does rescue sinners. All praise and glory to Jesus, the conquering king who rescues adulterous sinners from destruction by grace through faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we celebrate the reality of your grace. We're grateful for this witness to your grace in Joshua chapter two and how it assures us that your grace comes to us. In Rahab's son, our savior Jesus, whose grace is able to claim us and rescue us and bring us in to the covenant family and confer upon us all the covenant blessings of forgiveness and adoption and life everlasting. Give us encouragement and assurance of this through your word of gospel proclaimed to us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.